Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. Protecting this critical coastal ecosystem takes all of us. Watch the stories of the innovators and future leaders who help keep our coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. WABE in Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Kim Droves, in for Lois Freitas. Thank you for listening. Coming up today, music contributor Vaughn Phoenix joins us for this month's Punk Black to Go. And later this hour, photographer Ann Berry and book designer Lori Schock explore the emotional depth of primates with the new photography book, Behind Glass. But first... Emmy Award winner and two-time Grammy Award nominee David Cross is an inventive comedian, actor, writer, and producer. He's perhaps most well-known for his role as Tobias on the outstanding TV series Arrested Development, but those who have followed his career know his roots are in stand-up comedy. Cross's latest stand-up special is I'm From the Future, and it's available on his website, officialdavidcross.com. Cross embarked on his comedic journey while attending high school in Georgia, and when he recently joined City Lights host Lois Reitzis via Zoom, he explained his continued connection to Atlanta. I'm there roughly, assuming there's no global pandemic, I'm there roughly three, four times a year. Everyone except for one sister who's in North Carolina is down there still. I know you went to Northside High School for the performing arts. Were you already interested in a performing career as a teenager? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I, I have credited that school with, amongst other things, potentially saving my life. I was in a very miserable situation in Roswell. I was going to, the school doesn't exist anymore, nor does Northside, but it was called Crestwood. And I was just in a bad state there. And then, you know, I, back then Roswell was very disconnected from Atlanta. It was, it was its own place, not like it is now. So it was just a different kind of world. Were there other ways growing up here influenced or informed your work? Oh, sure. I mean, it's all over my earlier work. I was born in Atlanta. And when I was one, I moved to Florida. And then when I was about five, I moved up to the Northeast. And then when I was nine, moved back to Georgia and to to Roswell and had no connection with it other than a little kid who's like, this is where I was born. You know, you point to a stayed on the map and it's like something about peaches, I think. And uh, (laughs) I had never gone back and it was a 
really a massive culture shock for me that never went away, really. I shouldn't say never, certainly in my, in my, the time I was there until I left when I was 19 to go, I moved to Boston. I mean, I had great, fantastic memories over the years of being there, made some very good close friends that I'm still close with today. I was lucky enough to be there and kind of coming of age when the music scene was really burgeoning there uh, between Athens and Atlanta. And I had a fake ID, which was very easy to get back then. <laughs> but I mean, it was still such a, uh, you know, I came from a kind of liberal progressive area where being Jewish wasn't alien. And then I went to this place where I was, I just, I was made to feel very, you know, othered and weird and freakish. And not just not just the Jewish thing. That was one tiny little part of it. And I have tons and tons of jokes that are, some are anecdotal, some are just observational, but about being who I was in Roswell, Georgia in the, in the 70s and early 80s. You famously played Tobias Funke, the therapist turned unemployed actor on Arrested Development. When, when you were first cast for the role, what were some of your impressions of Tobias? Well, that's interesting because I wasn't initially, they didn't contact me about playing Tobias. They initially wanted me to look at Job and then also Buster as well, but they were really looking to cast Job. And I got the script and I already said, I, I had just moved to New York at the time after nine very long years in uh, Los Angeles. And I'd been looking to get out of LA for you know half the time I was there and had just managed to do so. So I wasn't interested in going back. And But a number of people were like, this script is great. Mitch is great. You got to check it out. And Mitch Hurwitz, the creator. Mitch Hurwitz, yeah. And um, who I'd never met before, hadn't even heard of. And I got the script and it's just, I mean, from the very first word to the last word is just brilliant. And it was, uh, you know, the pilot and it was, and I had no handle on Job. I did not, I couldn't picture it. I didn't know who he was. And, and the fact that they so perfectly cast Will Arnett mm -hmm. tells you how, how that's who Job is and who Job should be. And I was not that actor. And, uh, but I was reading it and I, immediately gravitated towards Tobias, who was written as just a recurring guy. It was only going to be there, you know, like six episodes or so. And I immediately had a handle on him and not only knew how I wanted to play it, but really had a strong desire to do it, like uh, against all the other feelings I had about not going back to LA and not doing a, you know, a potentially long running sitcom. Like I, it was just too good. And then when I did the pilot, I knew, I had to make it known that I think he should be a permanent character and a regular cast member, not reoccurring, because I, I, that was part of my deal, is I would only do like six episodes because I wanted to be back in New York. And I was like, this is too good. The character's too good. The writing's too good. The cast is amazing. The people, the whole crew was great. And it was just, um, you know, one of those things. But I, I, I immediately knew who Tobias was. And so did you and Mitch develop his character more together? Yeah, I called, this is pre-Zoom and internet and all that stuff, or at least that kind of internet. 
I called Mitch and we had a conference call between Mitch and the directors, Joe and Anthony Russo, the Russo brothers. And, you know, I told them my thoughts and they were all over it. They were all for it. And I, you know, gave them ideas on, you know, I definitely wanted the mustache, definitely you know, had some wardrobe kind of ideas and, and basically pitched him as, well, not even basically, this is literally how I pitched him as a kind of a cross between an East Coast Dick Cavett turtleneck wearing kind of intellectual <laughs> who goes hmm hmm a lot and uh, instead of laughing at movies references just goes hmm hmm yes hmm you know and a cross between that and a very touchy feely West Coast Marin California kind of self help type of new agey wellness <laughs> ponytail wearing guy so it was like a cross which are two weird things to cross but but that's i was like that's who tobias is to me so do strangers on the street yell at you asking for tobias lines or do they yell tobias lines at you not really they'll say tobias i'll get that i'll pass somebody not so much in new york or la but definitely in in other places people go like tobias i'll get that just from a car and definitely people Reference it for sure. Passionate fans of Arrested Development. Yes. In 2017, you and your wife, Amber Tamblin, had a baby daughter. Mm -hmm. David, I know in some of your old material, you expressed annoyance <laughs> with, yeah. with friends and family who had kids. In fact, right. <laughs> the album was called Shut Up Your Bleeping Baby. Has being a father made you revisit some of those takes? Well, I actually literally did an addendum to a joke that I did. It was Shut Up You, and Baby. The title isn't suggesting people shut their baby up and not like that <laughs> final episode of mash i have not this last special in which i talk about her as well and i have plenty of dad jokes but it's i think it was two specials ago i guess she had just been born so i was doing some material that references and uses the same punchline as the bit where i'm making fun of one of my best friends and writing partners bob odenkirk doing an impression to him with his kids so i turned it on myself it's, it's kind of a layered joke that took 20 plus years to finish. <laughs> Speaking of Bob Odenkirk, he's won tremendous acclaim on prestige television mm -hmm. with his performance as Saul Goodman in Breaking Bad and Better Call Saul. You go back so many years with your comedic work. No doubt you appreciated his sensibility, his comedy early on. Has it been sort of surreal for you to see the heights he's reached as a dramatic actor? Not at all. It's long overdue. I think he showed that capability even on, on some Mr. Show sketches. And I've mentioned one numerous times, and I'll mention it again, but there's a sketch we did called Prenatal Pageants. And you can see it in that sketch. You can see his, the humanity brings to you just a four minute sketch comedy thing. And it's real and it's grounded. You really believe that guy. And, and I think that's 
a good example of, and I, I feel like this about a lot of comedians, not necessarily stand-up, but com- comic actors, that they're very, very capable, more than capable of uh, handling dramatic parts. Would you like to do more dramatic roles? You know, depending, sure. I don't think my range is tremendously big. I think I have strengths and weaknesses and things that I can do, parts that I can do. But within those confines, I think I can, I'm sure I can. I did a, I did a dramatic film, little indie film called The Dark Divide a couple of years ago. And, yes. and I had not had that opportunity to do that and not done that ever. And, um, and it was very satisfying. It was hard. It was very hard. But, you know, I, I got really nice notices from that. And uh, I think I, I can watch it without cringing. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, that was an enjoyable, it's not like the thing I'm most naturally drawn towards, but I, I depending on the project and that, yeah, I would absolutely love to, yeah. It was announced that you and Bob Odenkirk are working on a new show for Paramount Plus called Guru Nation. Mm-hmm. Can you tell us anything about the project? Yeah, it's going to be a limited series, as it was intended to be. And and Bob, you know, we talked about this format that we haven't really done before, which is, you know, telling a story, beginning, middle, and end. It ends. That's it. We're not going to try to extend it for numerous series. It's it's a story. We want to tell the story. It's about, it's about a, a lot of things, but it's really basically about the kind of cult leaders and gurus and cult personality type of folks, some a little bit more evil and duplicitous than others, some not so. It's kind of told through the through these two kind of straight characters, these ingenues, uh, as it were, this uh, young girl, young boy, I shouldn't say boy, they were like in their 20s, but um, who kind of ping pong through these various cults and these leaders and uh, focusing on two of them, one played by Bob, one played by myself, although we will also do kind of multiple characters through in the story, but it will be more grounded than like a typical sketch. We're, we're working on making it feel real and also not being overtly judgmental in, you know, the, the question we want to acknowledge is when you watch these documentaries on, and there's so many of them now. I mean, there's tons of these documentaries of people getting taken by con men, or there's the Tinder Tinder swindler, and there's the puppet master, and all these things that have just come out on top of all the, you know, the vow and Keith Raniere and Wild Wild Country and the Source family. There's tons of them. And you always look at it and you're like, who, how the (laughs) do we want to kind of answer that question without making these, you know, judgments on people? And to show that you know, it, it's been happening forever and it doesn't matter what language you speak, what era you were born in culturally, whether what gender you are, it, it doesn't matter. It, you can get taken by, you know, a con man, whether it's religious based or science based or self-help based or whatever it is, or some amalgamation of the, the all of them. It's a real thing. You know, we, we're going to have pretty arch jokes in there because it's too fun not to have them. But we are going to try to sort of show that world, even though it'll be very funny, like you should have empathy for the the people that are getting sucked into the cults and not just dismiss them, you know? I'm quoting you here. Uh-oh. <laughs> 
My stand-up is slightly confrontational, a little snotty, a little condescending. David, there's a long tradition of comedians who mine dark depths, shocking topics. Would you talk about where one crosses a line or should stop short with comic irony and cynicism? Well, it's, you know, that's subjective and it's personal, but for me, and I've done a couple jokes that I can't defend other than like, I don't know, I thought it was funny. And a couple jokes I have that I wish I hadn't done, you know, I wish weren't out there. But it's when you're kind of beating up on the defenseless. If there's a real victim that crosses the line, or even a group, you know, a group that's marginalized. To me, that's the line that I would hope one wouldn't cross. But again, it's all subjective. And, you know, the best comedy I find punches up or makes fun of, you know, self-deprecating. And you don't need to be cruel. Okay. I'm from the future. The title of your latest stand-up show reminded me that you were in Station Eleven. Mm -hmm. You were part of that series, which was wonderful. Yeah, I I, I loved it. I, I was blown away by it. I, it was a really moving, special, extremely well done show that, you know, I, I came in and did my stuff and I was gone a few days later. So I didn't really know all the other stuff around it, but man, just fantastic. Kim, our senior producer, turned me on to that. And I was just blown away. And Danielle Deadweiler, who is Atlanta-based, mm -hmm. who played yeah. Miranda. Fantastic. She's amazing. I mean, the acting in that thing, uh, I mean, Himesh Patel and David Wilmot. I mean, this just goes on and on. I mean, the kids were just every everybody. They were fantastic. Yeah, acting was, the Miranda was astounding. But I read that before your first return to stand up to live post-pandemic, it said you were holed up in Toronto. Yeah. Was that while you were working on Station 11? Well, kind of the opposite. I worked on Station 11 because I was holed up in Toronto. I, I was there just briefly. I was there because my wife was working on a show that was shooting in Toronto. And once COVID was not going away and getting worse, we realized, oh, the whole family's going to have to move up there. Because there was, initially, we were, it was like, oh, this is great. Toronto's like an hour and a half flight from New York. And it's an ensemble show, big cast. And she's going to have all this time off and just, you know, fly to Toronto for a couple of days, fly back. And then and then we realized, oh, we're going to have to move the whole family up there. It's And my daughter was well, she was three at the time, turned four while she was in Toronto. And and we were, it was locked down. It wasn't like New York lockdown. It was locked down, like stay-at-home orders is what they called it. And nothing was open. There was delivery of stuff, but there was no, you know, there was no outdoor, nothing. It was, I mean, it was very deeply depressing and, and hard to deal with, especially with a little kid. So when we realized there was going to be no back and forth and I was going to be there for look like six months. I just called 
my agents had said, please get me whatever work there is. <laughs> I'll, I'll do anything. I mean, I'm stuck here. Because I thought, I, I assumed, I'll just do stand-up. It's fine. I'll go and, and get, a, get a residency somewhere. I, uh, Toronto's a great city for stand-up. I've, I've recorded an album there even. And uh, I always have fun shows when I tour there. And uh, I, you know, I was like, great, I'll just do stand-up. And then I couldn't even do that. So I was just like, please, anything. So Station Eleven kind of came my way via that request. Interesting. Was Station Eleven and your headspace then in any way responsible for the title, I'm from the future? No, it was was a whole separate thing. I had had that idea for a long time. Like, what? how do I talk about people who get you know, shaken and visibly upset and apoplectic just when they overhear other people speaking Spanish, like that kind of crazy thing. And, and I couldn't figure out how to do it right. And then not too long ago, it occurred to me like, oh, I'll, I'll make it about visiting kids and telling them what their future is going to be like. Hence the title yeah. and the bit. Yes. Comedian and actor David Cross. His new stand-up special, I'm From the Future, can be streamed on his website, officialdavidcross.com. More information is on our website, wabe.org. In a moment, music contributor Von Phoenix joins us for this month's Punk Black to Go. Amplifying Atlanta, this is WABE. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Kim Drobes, in for Lois Reitzes, and it's great to have you along. It's time to check in with City Lights music contributor Vaughn Phoenix. Vaughn is the president and co-founder of Atlanta's cultural and media phenomenon, Punk Black, and he joins us monthly with music recommendations. Greetings, my friends. I'm City Lights music contributor Vaughn Phoenix, and this is Punk Black To Go. For the unfamiliar, Punk Black is a media network that features people of color in the music, art, and nerd lore communities. Each month, I'll be joining the City Lights team to share music that I love from the Punk Black scene. But before we get to that this month, I just want to let y'all know that this is the anniversary of Punk Black. It makes me feel super old, but this is the seventh year of Punk Black. I cannot believe it. We started in 2015 just doing a series of house parties in Atlanta. The first Punk Black we started, we actually didn't even intend to keep doing Punk Black. We didn't think about doing festivals. We didn't think about branching off the social media, becoming a media network, or being on NPR eventually. Uh, we never thought that it would really get to that. Um, our band at the time was actually trying to garner votes for Afropunk. So we just said, hey, we'll just throw a show. It'd be dope if we had all POC bands. And when we threw the show, 
But um, at the time, we realized that we had been the thing that we were looking for the entire time. And the response that we got from everybody was really, really good. You know, people were coming up to us saying, hey, we're glad you guys are really doing this. Hey, the scene really needs this. Hey, Atlanta needs this. And we were like, oh, man, we do really need this. So we decided to keep it going um, and eventually branched off into doing more shows, festivals, features on cosplayers and features on other types of bands and nerd lore. And now Punk Block is what it is today. So our anniversary is officially May 22nd. So on our Instagram, we'll have all kinds of anniversary TBT, you know, throwback stuff going on all week. So, you know, join in on the fun at punk.black on Instagram. But enough of all that. Let's get to some music. Alright, for this month's musical features, let's start out with the band The Rack. Uh, this Atlanta band might as well be a, like a local super band. A lot of their members come from multiple bands in Atlanta. The The bass player comes from a band called 16 Bullets that used to be Detroit Mutant Radio. Their drummer comes from Ghosthead, Swallow by the Tide, Vicky's Dream. Um, he's played with my band a couple of times, Howling Star, way, way back in the day. All really, really good members. Vocals is a powerhouse. The guitar player is amazing. Has like an awesome electronic sort of EDM side project. All of them are powerhouses on their own. So when they come together, they have such a really, really good, warm and original sound. I know you're really, really going to dig them. So here's their song, Spinning. That was a quick sample of Spinning by The Rack. You can find them on Instagram at The Rack Band Official. Next up, we have Rough Francis. Rough Francis is <laughs> not to be um, on the term of um, nepotism as far as like punk glory, but they're made up of the sons of a band called Death. You know, you've probably seen a documentary on them. You've probably heard of them. You know, all black band, really, really dope. And the trickle down of talent has definitely affected Rough Francis. Very driving tones, very driving sounds, very dope aesthetic. Honestly, they really get my day going. They're a really good band to listen to in the morning, get you sort of like pumped up. Here's a sample of this song, Teen Zombies. That was a sample of Teen Zombies by Rough Francis. You can find them on Instagram at Rough Francis, exactly how it sounds, but if you're like me and you misspell everything, here it is. It's R-O-U-G-H Francis, F-R-A-N-C-I-S, Rough Francis. Last up, but certainly not least, we have Chirp. Now, I know I've said powerhouse way too many times, but Chirp, I'm telling you, is a powerhouse. Not just music, they do terror readings, they make clothes, they make jewelry, they fight crime, you name it. And their music, to me, is a bridge. It represents a bridge between the rap trap community and the rock metal community, which is a really powerful bridge. I think it's going to be really special going forward when rock comes back on the wheel of popularity. You know, you have pop music that was on top. You have rap music that was on, that was on top. And I feel like when it really, really comes back down to rock, which, you know, is approaching, honestly, 
I feel like it's going to be led by bands like Chirp. But enough of me talking. You tell me what you think. This is a sample of Chirp, Detroit Hardcore. That was a sample of Detroit Hardcore by Chirp. You can find them online at Chirp. That's C-H-I-I-I-R-P. Three I's. C-H-I-I-I-R-P. Well, my friends, that's all I have for you this month. Thank you so much for listening. Remember, we're going to have all kind of really cool things going on on our Instagram next week. So if you want to be a part of the fun of celebrating Punk Black and its anniversary, tune in. I'm WABE City Lights music contributor Vaughn Phoenix. Y'all be safe out there and be kind to each other. Music contributor Vaughn Phoenix and our series Punk Black to Go. More information about Vaughn and Punk Black is on our website, wabe.org, and happy seventh anniversary to Punk Black. Coming up, we'll explore the emotional depth of primates with the new photography book, Behind Glass. Amplifying Atlanta, this is 90.1 WABE. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Kim Drobes, in for Lois Reitzis. Thank you for being here. Photographer Ann Berry's work documents her profound encounters with primates. Her pictures portray the animals conveying a surprising range of facial expressions and depth of emotion. The artwork appears in the new book, Behind Glass, and when Ann Berry and book designer Lori Schock joined City Lights host Lois Reitzes via Zoom recently, Berry began by sharing what led her to start photographing primates. I was traveling with my husband in Europe, and I was looking for something to photograph, and I started going to zoos because that was a well, I've always loved animals, first of all, and I like to look at animals. And, and it was a place that I could go with public transportation. And also, there are always good directions to zoos, and I, I don't have a good sense of direction. So I would go to the zoo, and then, you know, very shortly, I realized that the most captivating thing in the zoo were the primates, because they're so much like us. So I started going to different primate houses. And when I would go on a trip with Will, I would I would say, well, let's stay another week and I was target some zoos that had primates in them. There are many city zoos represented here from Central and Western Europe. How did you decide which zoos to include in the book? Well, some of it just happened to be where I could go, where, where Will was going for work. And then then I would try to say, okay, well, if we're going to be in Dusseldorf, you know, I can get to Cologne. I can get on the train and go to Cologne and Wupp- or Wuppertal or Krefeld in less than an hour. So that was an easy one. But then I would, then after every trip, I might say, okay, could we just go over here? You know, so I would read about the zoos on some of the chats and the internet helped a lot with that. Is 
Atlanta the only U.S. zoo where you photographed? It pretty much is. I've been to some other zoos. I've been to the Portland Zoo in Oregon, and I've been to the zoo in St. Louis. But even Atlanta Zoo, it's hard to get photographs because our zoos, we don't have as many and they're bigger, but they're also a lot more crowded. Where in Europe, small towns have zoos and people are go there all the time. So that, and during the week, I would usually be the only person in the monkey house. <laughs> and that would never happen in Atlanta, even during the week. When did you realize that the primates were posing for you? Hmm. Well, I, I mean, I, it, it's clear that they are sometimes. And the one thing that I realized is how, how much they were is this very small zoo in Krefeld, Germany. I was taking pictures and a lady was in there sketching and she realized that I also was staying in the exhibit. And she came over and and she spoke a little English and she said, I want to introduce you to my favorite chimpanzee. And she walked me up to this big window and the chimpanzee was across the room and he looked up and he came over to the window and she said, this woman has come from the United States and she wants to take your picture. Well, he ran and got this large metal screw and came back and sat down in front of me holding his screw, you know, and then when I finished taking his picture, he went and hit it again. Oh, goodness. Now that is Charlie, yeah. who yeah. is number 31, his photo. Was he working on something with that screw? No, it was just a precious object to him. And I guess he hid it to keep it away from the other chimpanzees. And also he, he might have realized he was not supposed to have it. And that's <laughs> well, how do your portraits reveal the distinct personalities of each subject? Each type of primate you know, has a, a different type of personality, I think. And, and you can really see in the apes, you know, that they all have their own personality and their own facial features. And you can tell them apart. I think the smaller monkeys, it's harder to tell. And I also get a lot of people saying, oh, uh, that monkey's so sad, which is not actually true. They just don't have the muscles. That A smile to a primate is not like a smile to us. Oh, interesting. They might just be curious rather than, you know, they're usually looking at me and it's not that they're sad and trying to get out of the enclosure. They're just, they're liking to interact with me and they're curious. Now, and you have a foreword from the critic, curator, and writer, Jerry Cullum, whom I mentioned. You also have an opening statement from the godmother of primates, Jane Goodall, and a very impressive essay from Dr. Joe Satchel. Did you know a lot about primates before you began your work? I did not. I know a lot about horses, but I did not. I've learned a lot about primates. I didn't know the different species. And, and so whenever I went to a zoo that had certain types of primates, I would go home and research their habitats and what was threatening them and, and just more about the personalities of the primates. Mm. So I, I have learned a lot doing this project. Lori, you are the producer and designer of Behind Glass. 
What does your work entail? Well, when I begin a book, any book, it's about getting to know the artist and the author first and what body of work they want to reveal to their audience. And so Anne and I met years ago, actually, when I was teaching a publishing workshop at Serenby. And that was when I first got to see these portraits, these amazing portraits of the primates. And when Anne decided to publish a book, we sat down and talked about how to present the work. So the first thing is, in her case, we wanted to create a quiet and intimate experience for the reader, similar to her one-on-one meetings with the, you know, the primates. We wanted a reader to be able to really experience that each and every image without competition. So that's why there's one image on each spread so that you really have time to to sit and get to know as much as you can the personalities of each primate. So it's really about helping to realize the vision of the author or the artist or both. Because the average reader or viewer is not aware of this. We just see a beautifully produced book and I guess too often do not stop to realize what it takes to do that. The names and species of each animal as well as its level of endangerment are included at the end of the book. Why present that information as a list of plates rather than beneath the photo or on the opposite page? So that's different artists have different intents with what they want the reader to know as they're looking at each image. And if you don't have a lot of information with the image, then the reader can bring their own feelings and emotions to that image without any competition, without knowing anything about it. Hmm. Would either of you talk about primate diversity? That's touched upon in one of the essays. I guess it was in the essay by Dr. Satchel. She spoke about how many different countries they're from. Mm-hmm. I think when you talk about primate diversity and, and you should consider the endangerment and that that some of these primates are critically endangered and there won't be so much diversity. And once we get where there's not a lot of diversity, you know, this whole, every, all the living things in this world interconnect with each other. And when we lose a lot of that diversity, it's going to hurt the human. It's going to, we're going to lose our own. We spoke about Charlie holding the screw that he so cherishes. Let's talk about a few more photos. Boma signing, number 42. What is Boma conveying in sign language? I I don't know exactly what she's saying, but 
but I thought it was interesting. So that is in the same zoo with Charlie. That small zoo had three gorillas who have been there for since uh, they were all in their 40s. And it was a male and two females. And she's one of the females. She was the alpha female in that group. And just, it was interesting, the interaction between them. It's one of those old fashioned exhibits that's a painted room. But the zoo, you know, zoos are trying now to do more than just display animals. They're trying to get, you know, also be a, a voice for extinction and for and they try to find the what the animal needs but this zoo made an outdoor exhibit they had just lived there so long they didn't want to go outside so now the zoo would be tasked with just keeping these primates until you know for their lifetime these primates had been these gorillas had been taken from africa but you would never do that now but you still have to take care of them as long as they're going to live But so they would just come and there were certain people that came every day to that little zoo that they would interact with. Hmm. It's so sad to hear that they didn't want to go outside. I know a great deal has been written about zoos comparing them to prisons. Was that some of what you were getting at with this book? I don't think so. So I there've been some some nice photography books done that show the enclosures of the zoo and that you maybe get that feeling from but with me I was trying to focus on the personality or the portrait and of the animal. So you don't see the zoo. You can't say they're in the window. You can't see whether or not they have a gorgeous outdoor enclosure or not. And but I wanted to focus on the beauty of the animal and maybe that you look at it and get a feel a relationship with it and some empathy for it. And then maybe you would go and say, oh, well, that crested macaque that has his hand on the window. And when I read about them, they're just extremely endangered in their habitat. So for people that that say how do you know that I don't like to look at this because I don't like zoos, I would like to say, well, I hope you are doing something about animals in the wild because the wild is shrinking till there's basically not any wild left. Mm. Number 19, the photo of Persephone breaks my heart. It appears as though she's enclosed or, or trapped inside a glass globe. Would you describe this photo and what you believe she was telling you? Yes. Okay. So first of all, that photo is a a few of the photos are montages where I wanted to add something. A montage is a picture on top of a picture where I maybe wanted to add something to give the, the primate a little bit of a story, a narrative. And so that's one of those little bubbles that kids pop up in and that it was for looking at penguins. That's also an example of one of those primates where she, those colobus monkeys have a natural look where it looks like they're sad or frowning, but she's really just curious. So it's to me, she, she looks like she's just popping up, looking around at the, they're, they're looking at the people like we're looking at them. And, and all the animals in the zoo, if people don't go to the zoo, they get depressed. If something happens like in New Orleans with the flood and in Ukraine right now, 
there's a gorilla in, in the Ukraine Zoo in Kiev, he's very depressed. Oh. Well, I'm glad to hear you say at least that the sad expressions are not necessarily reflecting the primate's emotions because while several of the animals in this book have intelligent, thoughtful expressions, very few appear to be happy. And I'm wondering about the level of contentment you observed among the primates you photographed. Usually they seem content and they have things in a zoo. They're less stressed than they would be in the wild because the zoos are giving them some a place for some privacy, some food, some some things to play with. And, you know, just all the things that a primate needs to, to have a good life in the wild, they're trying to give them in the zoo. And especially the small monkeys, like that monkey, the colobus monkey, if they have a nice outdoor enclosure too, they probably are less stressed than they would be in their natural habitat. Now, the, uh, the bigger an animal is, the more space it needs. And it is sad that they, you know, that, that they can't have enough space, but they don't have that in Africa either. But, you know, they might be in a sanctuary, but, and it's got high walls around it, and it's, people are riding around in um, Land Rovers with walkie-talkies, you know, following them around. Hmm. Lori, this may pertain to you. I've been giving numbers uh, referencing the order of the photos. Is that the decision of the producer and designer as well, how to set up the order of the photos? It's a typical approach to produce photo books where you number the plates. You won't always find it in every photography book or fine art museum book, but it is an approach and I like it. It does two things. It first helps you relate back to the image without even having page numbers. It also can mimic an exhibition in a gallery. But is there any sort of narrative or underlying story you're trying to convey with the order in which the photos appear? Yes. Whenever you have a collection of images, you think about how to sequence those images. So you're creating a visual narrative. You know, what I first do is I'll take all of the images and I print them all out and I lay them down on the floor and I start looking for similarities. The use of their hands or in talking about Anne's book, the use of the primate's hands, where their eyes are looking, shapes, negative and positive space within each image. And then I try creating a visual narrative where one image will automatically lead into another through some look or shape. So I spent some time doing that to create a sequence. And when you're doing all of this, you don't want necessarily for the reader to understand what's going on behind the scenes. It's like one big puzzle. It's one big production. And if you design it and produce it, in an effective way, then the reader doesn't really understand what's going on. They're just having an experience that's cohesive 
and communicates what you hope to communicate. It's like what you were saying, Lois, that people don't understand, you know, what goes into creating a book. And if they don't know, then you've succeeded because you, you haven't interrupted their experience. Oh, that's wonderful. And clearly, you do not expect to be in the spotlight or center stage, if you will. No, I'm, I'm in the background. You know, what we do, you know, we want to, typically, we just like to remain in the background and let the book and the author be visible to the audience. The placement of 49, Estelle's photo near the end of the book is quite moving. She appears to be deep in thought, if not looking up at the heavens. What does her pose reveal? Well, you're right, like looking up into the heavens, and it's reflective. And I would hope that it's kind of like reflecting on this collective experience of relationships and that a reader might actually have kind of a similar unconscious parallel feeling of what they've just experienced and that it's making them think a little bit deeper about primates and our responsibility to them. I was hoping you would touch upon that each of you, if you want to. In Dr. Joe Satchel's essay, she offers solutions to prevent the extinction of primates. How does the conservation of primates relate to the environmental issues, crises that we face as humans? Yes, it relates because if when everything goes extinct, then we will be next. And that is one function that zoos have is because it's education and empathy are the only things that are gonna make people want to protect these animals. If they don't know they exist, they're not gonna be trying to help. In a way, it's like these species, these animals that are in the zoo are ambassadors for the rest of their species. Hmm. So what is the impact you hope this book will have upon readers and viewers? Well, I hope that it makes them consider the environment and conservation and makes them maybe want to get involved in a conservation effort or do something, even every little thing somebody does can help. So, you know, that's what I feel like. I can't do anything. I'm not in a position to do anything major, but if you try to live your life where you do small things, then it helps. And I also try to use this book, you know, I'm totally open and always looking for other projects that where I can use it as a fundraiser for them. So I'm working with Project Chimps, which is a sanctuary for chimpanzees that have been released from biomed experiments, but they still are stuck in the lab until somebody makes a place where they can go. And this um, beautiful piece of property in North Georgia has taken about, I think they have about 70 chimpanzees now, but there's still about that many more left in the lab in Louisiana. 
that are waiting for them to be able to add on to their facility so that they can go to this. Because And chimpanzees like are social. They like to live in groups. So they would be able to go and live in groups and go outside. I go take some pictures for them. And, and if they want to have an event and use my book as a as a fundraiser, along with a photograph of one of their chimpanzees. And I'd like to work with some other foundations in that same way. Photographer Ann Berry and book designer Laurie Schock. More information about Behind Glass is available on our website, wabe.org. You've been listening to City Lights on WABE, our daily exploration of arts and culture. Tomorrow at 11 a.m., Grammy-nominated singer Somi. Her new album, Zenzile, celebrates the soul-stirring music of South African Miriam Makiba. If you missed part of today's show, you could catch up on our website, wabe.org. There you'll find a complete archive of interviews so you can listen to City Lights on your own schedule. City Lights executive producer and host is Lois Reitzis. Summer Evans is our producer and our engineer is Shelley Canavy. I'm senior producer Kim Drobes, and we want you to connect with City Lights on social media. We're at WABE City Lights on Facebook and Instagram, and you can follow Lois on Twitter at L-O-I-S-R-E-I-T-Z-E-S. Thank you for listening to WABE Atlanta. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Have you donated to WABE yet? I know you've heard us talking about why it's important, but it doesn't have to be this big decision. You can give at whatever amount fits your budget. It can be a spur-of-the-moment thing. You already get so much out of public radio, so just go for it. Visit wabe.org slash donate and become a member right now. And thank you.